This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Charcoal has just opened the call for entries to the fourth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. Submit your work now through December 9th for a chance to be one of the 58 artists invited to spend the week in Montana with Alessandra Sanganetti, Jim Goldberg, Vanessa Winship, Todd Heido, Awoiska Vandermolen, Raymond Meeks, and 15 of the most respected publishers and organizations in contemporary photography. Attending artists receive formal portfolio reviews by speakers and reviewers, artist lectures, panel discussions, peer reviews, and additional evening programming over the seven-day event. One grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and will be published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. For more information and to apply, visit chicoreview.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. Mac Grubb is sitting in his car in the parking lot outside his favorite movie theater in Queens, sipping a Diet Coke. As we're coordinating a time to meet for this interview, he tells me that he's about to go see the new Avengers movie for the third time. It had just come out about two weeks ago. I'm amazed and laughing to myself just thinking about how much I love that compulsion. I think the same kind of curiosity and passion goes into his work and is one of the reasons he's such a brilliant image maker. His pictures often varied in genres, are unified somehow in this mysterious, very original combination of eloquence and strangeness. Mac grew up in San Francisco, earned his MFA at Yale, and has done editorial work for the New York Times, Vice, and most recently, Gay Letter. This past summer, he published his first now-sold-out book, Brian Singer 2001, made up of a body of work that he shot in Los Angeles, which we'll talk about a bit later on. When we got together, he had recently gotten back from a trip to San Francisco, visiting his family and making new work that I asked him about. It's only in the last, like, maybe five years that I'm, like, very gay with my family. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds disgusting. Uh, no. <laughs> but, like, 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 you know, like, my, my mom watched me, like, get into drag for a photograph. Um, that was fun. And my dad did, too. I have these very cute pictures of her, like, sitting on the, my childhood home porch like on a chair holding her cell phone up Uh um it's like that uh that photograph of aretha franklin with the video camera yes uh um but in like watching me like get into and it was supposed to be an ugly picture like it was like um it wasn't supposed to be like cute glam so she was she was watching me uh get into drag and like feeling very proud i guess or whatever uh it was nice Uh, like i wouldn't that's something i don't think i would have done like seven years ago yeah um how did they react to it oh yeah they were just like oh that's weird yeah my my dad was driving me crazy because it was it like involved natural light but we had gone to a movie and gotten home like an hour later than i thought we were going to and i was like planning on doing this picture so i was like rushing around and like makeup was shit like everything was bad it just wasn't working yeah Uh, but my dad was like asking me all these questions and and I was like, dad, shut the fuck up. I need to, I need to put these eyebrows on and wrap myself in mom's shawl. Oh God, that picture is so stupid. I haven't even shown anybody the raw files of that picture because I'm embarrassed. It's like nothing, nothing about it was working. Okay. So these self portraits that you're talking about, you basically dress yourself up in all different kinds of drag, make all different kinds of pictures, all different kinds of self portraits. When did you start doing those? I started doing them about a year and a half ago. Um, I had uh, a birthday on 
Fire Island and I like rented a house for a week. Um, and my friend Eli Kim used to work at Mac Cosmetics uh-huh. and he came to Fire Island with like a bag of makeup and was just like, here, this is your present. Cause like we'd talked about it and we'd like played with makeup before, yeah. but it was all like, it was like powders and, uh, eyeshadows and like nothing useful, but I tried to make like a face out of it on Fire Island. It's the most horrifying thing in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, my, my boyfriend at the time was like, it like haunted him that that photo uh-huh. uh but anyways um so when i got back to new york i was like well i have all of these like the basics or like the extra stuff like i want to i'll go get the real stuff and i'll just like play around with it it was always like just playing around with it for the first like three months or so i was just doing it by myself like in my room and not taking it seriously just like playing around uh and i look back and like it's they're bad. Like I didn't know what I was doing. Makeup is really hard. It's like scientific mm-hmm. in this way that I had no idea that it was. You have to like layer things in this specific way. You like can't put certain things on top of other things or else it like makes this like horrible patchy mess. It's very it's really weird and really complicated. Um but as I got like better and better at it, I think uh I started photographing the looks um yeah and 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 they started kind of in the studio since then they've like uh split off into i'll do some in the world uh but yeah they're really more of like um these quick sketches uh they're very dumb and they're like very simple and they're very like i think out of everything i've ever made they're the most uh like one to one, like I'm feeling something and then I make a picture about the thing that I'm feeling. Hmm. And it started like, it started in a very draggy way. It started like, I'm going to look beautiful. Like maybe I'll look a little bit strange, but like, I also want to look like a more beautiful version of myself. I want to look like slimmer. I want to look like better cheekbones, like (laughs) all of this stuff. Um, And then uh, as it went on, it started switching to like, I want to like make myself uglier and not in that kind of like, that like hungry salvia fecal matter drag of kind of like you look ugly, but it's still glamor. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like, I genuinely, I, I just wanted to look ugly, like bad mm-hmm. um, and, and, and creepy in a way that like brought out the things that I don't like about my face. Wait, why? Uh, because it was, uh, it felt really hollow to keep just making myself like beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's very easy. And I think like, you learn your face pretty quick and you learn what works on your face. The one that was a turning point is it's this kind of blue background. uh, And I have like brown hair, like parted down the middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was really one where I like went into the studio and I was like, I, I need to look like beautiful today. Like, like things are shit and I need to look beautiful for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, so I like sat down and I had like set up this lighting scenario and I basically I set up the lighting without myself or without any makeup on. And so I like photographed myself like plain and I just get like um, the lighting to a general point so that I don't have to be futzing with it too much in drag. Uh, and so I was like photographing myself in the setup and just like hating the way I was looking in these pictures. Like it was just so awful. And so that was like, and I was like, okay, great. Well, I get to cover this up. But then the my instinct then was like, instead of covering that ugly up, I will like increase it. Like I, there were these, you know, I could see these kind of like glare on my 
like right next to my nose where like my cheek comes out. There's like all, you know, like a double chin showing up. And um, so I just made all of that much worse with makeup. Um, And that was, yeah, that was a really big turning point for how I like thought about the images. When you talk about wanting to make yourself beautiful, you're not basically enhancing your own features, but you're transforming yourself into, you're transforming yourself into beautiful drag. Yeah, exactly. It's a representation of beauty. And of course, the representation of beauty is, you know, thin white woman. Uh You know, always like, like, which is also meant to be a a little bit subversive. Yeah. But I also, um, I don't think my drag has ever, I try to avoid any sort of like clear idea of gender in the images, especially lately. So I try like I've, I've stopped doing like boobs cause I don't know what that means to me. It was something that I did at the start because it was like, Oh, that's what you do. You have boobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was kind of like, well, why, why, like, why do I, why would I have boobs? I'm not trying to be a woman. I'm trying to be a version of myself that it, it involves altering like the way that I appear, but it felt very weird to like do these markers of gender. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 the, the way that I process it is, is weird and it changes picture to picture too, but it's been fun. It's like, it's, it's the most like, uh, it feels like a sketchbook. Uh, and I've never really had like a photographic sketchbook before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the interesting things with them also is that, they all feel really different. Like it feels like you're coming up with a new solution for each one that goes beyond just the way you look. Like the actual mm. aesthetics of, of each of them are all kind of varied, even yeah. though they all seem to work very cohesively together. Yeah, they're very colorful. <laughs> I mean, and, and I say this with love, they're they're very stupid. Like yeah. They're, yeah. they're very easy to love and they're very simple. And I don't think of them as like my most complicated work at all. They're they're like sort of a like a quick expression that I can do in six hours in my studio. Uh, you know, <laughs> quick in six hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quick, that's quick for me. These like oftentimes these things are in planning for like three years. So, yeah. um, and I think that that's why I've felt more of a reaction to them than to the other work because I think they're like playing with something that's a lot more um, elemental and like relatable and understandable. And I think they also have the uh, appearance of painting. They relate to painting more literally, both like in the final form of them, but also in the way that I make them. Why is that important to you? Painting and sculpture and video is... Uh, to be totally honest, like contemporary painting and sculpture and video is more inspiring to me than contemporary photography. Mm -hmm. I wanted to create a show that was, um, it was like painting after 2000 and photography before 1900 Uh because there's like a lot in common. And for some reason, those are like two eras that I'm really looking at right now. So you've been looking at a lot of contemporary painting and a lot of old photography. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with old photography, I um, have been going in and trying to fill in a lot of gaps of things that I feel like were left out of all of my educations. Uh, So, you know, look, going back and being like, who, 
in the like sort of basic study of photography, photography has a really, really strong kind of boring narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the, it's Western, it's white, it's um, the flaneur in the field, or it's the scientist in the studio, or it's the like, you know, uh, it's the man. My, my uh, college professor, Nicole Jean Hill used to say it's the, the man striding into the field with a tripod on his back. Uh-huh. <laughs> like that's the image I always get. Um, and I think that that's like, so I've been going back and being like, well, actually who are the people who did not fit into that, um, into that mold who are also making work, uh, who, you know, weren't Western or weren't white or weren't men or weren't straight or, uh, and you, you find work that is, on par with any of the best work that's been made in historical images, but that is kind of only now getting recognition. Like someone like Marianne Breslauer, hmm. uh, she was like making images in Germany. Uh, a lot of them are like landscapes and kind of modernist looking images that you would expect. And then a lot of them are these photographs of kind of like gender non-conforming women, like gorgeous, like black and white images. Uh, of people. I think that uh, like Consuelo Kanaga, who is making these like really beautiful images of sort of like underrepresented communities in the West. Uh, and then like going like, of course, like people like Gordon Parks or like Roy de Carava, mm-hmm. um, who are, you know, I think in every way the equal of any photographer who is working at that period of time, if not the equal, like the better than with like such personality and such like technical genius, their work has definitely been something that I've been going back to. And it's also like, um, you know, thinking about like Stan Douglas riffing on their images as well in like a contemporary way that sort of feels very relatable to me. I don't know. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I was sort of taught the myth of Bernice Abbott as being the person who was, um, like smart enough to recognize that Ajay was a genius. Like Mm -hmm. that was like the narrative of her that I had in my head. Um, And then I remember going to a museum probably four or five years ago. Like I knew like, Oh, she took photographs, but like her main role was like archiving this genius Uh um, who didn't even know he was a genius. Uh It's like, (laughs) um, and then like I saw a photograph of hers in a museum and it was a really incredible photograph of these like houses on a corner in Greenwich village so I started looking into her more and then got that like incredible five volume Steidel book of her work that is like absolutely bonkers that she was like not only working constantly, but making these like incredible images in a variety of different like medium format, small format, um, uh, large format, like uh portrait, just everything like really uh, nailing it. I don't know. There's, there's, um, yeah, there's, and then you go back also of like the mid-century, uh, like African photographers like Samuel Faso, uh, or people who, you know, it's like making very queer self-portraits in an environment in which like there was no market or interest in that. Yeah, I think it's been all about just expanding my idea of like who is taking photography in different eras and for what purpose Mm -hmm. uh beyond what i feel like has been kind of a limited uh access in education yeah you just you said something before about 
people making work out of either love or necessity. Mm-hmm. And is that always the the main quality in discovering work that you respond to? No, not at all. No. I think I think one of the reasons I use that phrase for this these images is because it seems like the person who was making them was fighting against like a dominant mythology uh-huh. at the time. I think when there are probably more forces telling you to stop than there are to continue, that to me feels like uh, probably out of necessity in some way. You just talked about Bernice Abbott. One thing that you really responded to is how she made all different kinds of work, you know, different formats, different applications. I feel like that's a big part of your practice too. Like that's something that you want your body of work to feel like. You do um, work that's in the studio. You do, you know, portraits which are in the studio. You do work that's made out in the world. You do some editorial work, all within a pretty distinct personal voice. Is that an important thing to you? Yeah. Is it, uh, yeah, you, 100%. Yeah, you, you want your body of work to be kind of varied? Yeah, and, um, you know, almost to a problem sometimes. I think, like, I have a sort of, like, photographic restlessness where I think the moment it feels like somebody's able to, like, figure it out, I'm like, no! <laughs> you know, like, like, I have to, like, switch. I'm like, when someone's like, oh, you know, uh, like, oh, your work is your work is this. And I'm like, you don't know my work. I could do something different tomorrow. You have no idea. Um, uh, but Wait, no. hang on. Wait, 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 let's just talk about that for a second. What's that all about? That is definitely, like, um, all of my work and even in my, like, individual bodies of work is about, um, like, like, kind of rattling the viewer from picture to picture in some way by either changing the voice or the um the idea of who's making the image or why the image is being made uh or like um changing the vernacular of the image like from one within a body of work one image will look like it was taken with like a luscious like large format camera in a studio and the next will look be look like it's taken with a cell phone like that kind of a thing has always been really important because I think that that to me feels really contemporary mm-hmm. like that. If you go to like the front page of Buzzfeed, you see 30 different images and they all have a different purpose and a different origin. Uh, some of them are like journalism. Some of them are uh, editorial. Some of them are stock photography. Some of them are like, you know, a screenshot from friends mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 the the how rapidly your mind is able to process those images without necessarily knowing that's what it's doing is like a super interesting and contemporary idea to me um so that's always been like something that's existed in the practice uh even back to the work that i like applied to school with uh that 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 was more um it was more homogenous in the sense that it was all made with the same camera with like natural light and everything. But there were like multiple different, there were like three different like sections of that project. Uh, mm-hmm. And they were all supposed to do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think like I, and it's also like, and I say this, like I'm making it sound like this is a really conscious decision. It's like, it's really not. It's just like the way that uh, my photographic mind like wants to work for some reason. Um, I love having studio people over to the studio to like sit for portraits. 
um, but I want to make those portraits good. So like I worked for years, like how do I make the lighting interesting? How do I turn like what is a really static, boring situation into like an interesting one? Hmm. Then I get like um, ideas which are conceptual or theoretical, like the rover discovering a small unidentified object image is like something that usually comes to me randomly and then I'll write it down in my phone and live with it for uh, a little while. And if it continues to be interesting to me, I'll like figure out how to do it and then like slowly process it. Uh, then the editorial stuff is just, it's just cause like, I really like being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Editorial's great. Like you have like a goal and you have like someone who tells you if you did the goal right. And then yeah. you get money if you did it right. <laughs> it's like, but like, that's really fun because it's like, um, my editorial assignments are never something I would have done by myself. Like they're not people I would have necessarily photographed or situations I would have found myself in. Um, but you have to like figure out, okay, I'm going to tell this story. How am I going to do it in a way that feels like me, but also feels like the publication? Yeah. And I just think, I just think like having all of these modes of working are super interesting to me. Mm. I want to ask you about the studio portraits. I want to ask you about more, sexually explicit type of imagery mm-hmm. maybe not sexually explicit maybe just when you have someone who is let's say naked in front of the camera mm-hmm. a naked body in and of itself happens to be interesting that doesn't mean it's going to be an interesting photo so yeah. what do you how do you want your pictures to to transcend that like what are you often looking for I don't think about that consciously mm-hmm. at all. I don't think like, how do I make this naked person better than just looking at a naked person? Yeah. But I think it kind of exists in like the, the basic ideas of, uh, of what I don't want the pictures to be. What don't you want them to be? I don't want them to be a record of somebody beautiful being beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's like not interesting to me anymore. It definitely was for a little while. I think like, um, I was like, a little bit more comfortable with that. And now I, I think I would hope that I don't ever let like beauty just kind of like be, um, and like exist without at least like a soft challenge. Sometimes that challenge is like the pose or the lighting or something happening that would like twist it a little bit, but similar to like the self portraits, the like studio portraits are really, um, just a process of like instinct and, uh, it took me about two or three years in the studio to get to a point where like if someone comes over, I just need like an hour to set up the lights mm-hmm. and like like I can translate an idea, a lighting idea in my head. When I first started shooting in the studio, when I moved into my studio, I would lay in bed thinking of a lighting concept mm-hmm. and I would like know what I wanted it to look like. Usually that answer was like Craig McDean in the 90s. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make a Craig McDean in the 90s picture. And I would like make a whole lighting diagram in my head. And I would be like, it's going to work. Oh my God, I got it. Uh And I would go into the studio and set it up and it would look so bad. And it would just like, it would have nothing to do with what's in my head. And I finally now, like two or three years later, gotten to the point where if I'm like lying in bed thinking about a lighting diagram, I can set it up. And it'll look like that when I set it up in the studio. Um, that that was that's hard. Uh, that was like a lot of work. Um, 
but the thing that was interesting about that is like i would set it up and it would look like shit um but then the person would show up and you'd have to figure out like how to do this in front of them and you're like uh what do i do and i I think we were talking about this i was like sometimes when the when a picture isn't working in the studio i would just go and like spin the lights Mm -hmm. um so like uh you know i'd have like two or three lights on and i would just like spin them around and see where they land and be like and hope that worked and then if it didn't you just adjust the thing here or like you add one little light here or like a color or something and eventually you start getting i started getting to a place where it was like oh i can I can make something that has like personality. Yeah. And it also helps me to think on my feet for editorial assignments because like those are very, you don't know where you're shooting. You don't know what the conditions are. You can't be like guaranteed. Um, I had an assignment that was given to me uh, at, I think eight o'clock the night before. And they were like, I didn't know where it was being shot. I didn't know if I could use lights. I didn't know how much time I would have. I didn't know anything. And if that had happened to me three years ago, I would have died. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like the, the I would have died from stress. But in this situation, it was kind of like, okay, I guess I'll bring my lights and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I still like that picture, weirdly enough. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Matt Grubb that we recorded in Williamsburg. To see some visuals and to find out more about the show, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Was there a lot of culture in your upbringing? No, uh, no. My family is cultured and smart. Yeah. Um, but they're not like ravenous devourers of like of art and and culture and stuff. Movies were were like the culture. My mom and I would go started going to movies probably when I was eight. You know, not like young and like inappropriate movies. Yeah. Which God bless her for that. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, you know, it's like there are times when I think back like at how insanely lucky I was to have the parents that I had. I had a moment, um, I had a moment a couple, like a little while ago or a couple years ago where I was thinking about how important seeing Magnolia in the theaters was to me, the PT Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when the trailer came out and they used to have the Apple, like the Apple website used to have like trailers and you had to download them mm-hmm. and then watch them on like a media player. And I, and I watched the Magnolia trailer, like, 30 times and then my mom took me to the movie and I remember thinking like that's the best movie I've ever seen and in my head I was like 16 or 17 when this happened and I was like that's a little inappropriate from a, I mean not inappropriate that's like a little I, pre- I appreciate that my mom taking me to that movie when I was like that young like yeah. that's like a thing that not most parents would do I looked up when Magnolia was, le- was released I was 12 <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like holy shit that's a three hour really explicit really intense dramatic movie um 
but I really, I think it like changed my life. I really do. I think like that movie opened up so many things. And then I was like making movies in high school. Really? Um, yeah. I was in this, uh, a public school that had these like internal academies, uh, yeah. hard to explain, but one of them was like a filmmaking academy. So like one of the classes was, uh, like filmmaking and you'd make like a movie a quarter, hmm. um, documentary narrative, mm-hmm. uh, that was so much fun. We still have some of those. Actually, no. My mom taped over those no. with Young and the Restless episodes. Oh we only had a VHS, and she taped Young and the Restless episodes over my priceless high school films. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, and then and then photography was just kind of a stopgap thing that I did uh, because uh, it was a way to make movies without having to involve a bunch of other people. Hmm. And then the Dan Arbus show. The Arbor Show was big for you. Yeah, uh, that was the first time I ever remember. You know how many how many gay guys say this exact sentence, but that was like the first time I remember like really truly like loving and getting photography. Yeah, and uh, it was the first photo book I ever owned. Mm-hmm. The monograph. Uh, no, that's a lie. I bought a book of a terrible book of Scavolo nudes mm. from the Borders Books. Uh-huh. Uh, and I kept it under my bed. Yeah. I have this wild interview book, actually, that I bought a long time ago, which is called Scavulo on Men. <laughs> por- portraits of men in these crazy interviews from, like, the 70s. When I think about those eras, it just, doesn't it just seem like models were being, like, lowered into a lion's den of, like, mm-hmm. of just, like, insecure, awful people who were successful and completely unchecked? Mm-hmm. It just, it seems so brutal and I'm sure it's worse than a lot of people even say. Yeah. I'm sure there are like for every story we hear, there's like 40 people who are not telling yeah. that story. So I want to ask you about the Brian Singer project, which you've been working on for the past few years. Yeah, technically. Yeah. I mean, intermittently comes in right. fits and starts, but yeah. like, uh, yeah, it started as an idea, uh, for one photograph back when my work was a little bit more like a single image oriented like it was kind of an entire conceptual world would get like distilled into one photograph and then like the idea would be done Mm -hmm. but around like 2014 there were these articles and there's like one main one that came out on the website defamer about uh the film director Brian Singer who did like the usual suspects and x-men was like his big break uh and he recently was fired halfway through directing Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, although he's still the only credited director, which is weird. Um, But he was closeted, and he had this sort of network of gay producers and directors who were all in this, like, Hollywood elite, and they would throw these pool parties that became very notorious in the early and mid-2000s. Basically, they would, like, round up a lot of, like, a mixture of, like, Hollywood hopefuls and, like, hot young twinks and uh, have these, like, kind of small, like, 15 to 20 person pool parties that would also just become a kind of casting couch uh, situation. But these articles started coming out in 2014 because people were were talking about that they were, like, uh, you know, drugged or harassed or raped or kind of chewed up and spit out by this like Hollywood machine when they were really young. And then of course, like more and more stories about Brian Singer have come out over the years. But so I remember reading that article and thinking it was a really interesting cross section of like capitalist power grabs, 
Hollywood ladder climbing. And then like how that all interacted with a sort of gay diaspora that was hidden in plain sight in this way. Uh, And yeah, so at the time it was originally going to be one photograph. So my process with my more conceptual work is to write the idea down and then I mo- and then I mull that idea over for a while and if it sticks around I'll often like make a drawing like a watercolor sketch of what I think the photograph will look like. And weirdly enough that actually helps me both like solve a lot of aesthetic problems but then also like have something on the wall in my studio to like look at as like, Oh, this is where this could go. So I had this one drawing of this photograph that I was going to take. And the more, and this idea more than almost any other idea, like stuck in my head, I would be like drunk at a club dancing. And then like an idea for a new image would come up and I would like run to the bathroom so I could like write it on my phone in privacy. Uh, which is actually how a lot of my ideas get written down Mm -hmm. it's like at clubs Mm -hmm. literally like the um yeah anyways yeah it's funny how yeah (laughs) no it's funny when they come to you yeah Yeah, yeah. when you're not like paying attention but and they don't even have anything to do with clubs it'll be like you'll be like oh i need to make a picture about the mars rover Uh um uh but um yeah and then so like it slowly started expanding more and more every aspect of it started expanding so originally it was going to be like three actors and i was going to basically like get somewhere in new york to play los angeles and then i decided like that genius film title that los angeles had to play itself Uh um it's the light in los angeles is obviously very specific but when i shot the project it turned out that like there was way more important reasons to shoot it in Los Angeles because it's a type of person who exists only in LA and I could not have found them in New York in the same way and definitely not in the same volume. So I started planning the shoot and the more I planned it, the like bigger it got. And I worked with a casting company called cast partner who are unbelievable. And they, I sent them a directive. I was like, Oftentimes, like when I have these conceptual projects, the thing that gets the ball rolling is like involving another person mm-hmm. because then it like becomes a slightly a much harder train to stop. Right. It's really easy to stop your own train. Yeah. When you get someone else on there, it's like, oh, you can disappoint them like or they're mad because you're not going to pay them or, they're, you know, it's like right. uh, it, it's really helpful. Um, so I got cast partner involved and I sent them a directive and I said, like, they're so unbelievable. I had worked with them before on a previous project and I sent them the most abstract directive and they sent me the most accurate genius selection of people. So I sent them a similarly abstract directive this time. I said, uh, I want someone who looks like the most eager person off the bus from Kansas Mm -hmm. who like just landed in LA and like has no idea what they're getting into. And they sent me a list of about 50 or 60 people that they combed from their own casting archives, Instagram, uh, a, a, ra- a really random assortment of things, but they were genius. Like, e- like everybody was so perfect. Uh, so I chose like 20 actors and I had like hair, makeup. I rented a house for three days, this kind of big, cheesy, ritzy, like LA house. And I had like, you know, tech people and stuff. It was a film shoot. It was a two day film shoot but I was the only coordinator really. It was, it was uh-huh. very intense. I, I, I think it's my best work that I've ever made. Um, How come? I think it's the most complicated thing I've ever made. I think a lot of the, the ideas that I put into it 
translated into the image in a way that in the past has like failed. Um, when I was shooting and when I was planning and when I was coming up with these images, I had this really strong, you know, it would be like, you know how the, in uh, the Theranos documentary she has on the wall, the Yoda quote, mm-hmm. like my, my <laughs> this is like do or do not. There is no try. Um, my Yoda quote would have been no heroes and no victims. That was the thing I kept telling myself the entire time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to cast like old men as these like predatory problematic people only preying on the young and I didn't want to cast the young people as these like naive victims who like uh had no idea what was going on because then it would make the photos more ambiguous that way yeah it would it to have cast people in that way I think it would have like taken out a lot of the actual texture that existed Mm -hmm. that was the thing that was really fascinating is that you're reading about these parties and for some people these were amazing they were like they were plucked from obscurity and put into like a a Hollywood power situation and like it was intoxicating they were like getting attention they were like seen as like beautiful and desirable to a group of people who could have you know quote unquote anybody right for other people it was like the worst experience of their life they were like you know completely chewed up and spit out um they were like seen as absolute objects to like fulfill rich people's fantasies Mm -hmm. um like that is the breadth of experience that i kind of wanted the photos to have and and then it was also really interesting because some of the people who were on the shoot had been to brian singer's parties before i tried in the in the months before the shoot to not read anything about the parties I had read these things and kind of come up with these ideas and hadn't read them for a while. And I was like, okay, now I don't want to read any information about these. Cause like I didn't want it to be a literal depiction of the parties. Right. Did you know exactly what you wanted to get out of the pictures or was, were the actual pictures themselves, these things that you discovered just by making them? It was a combination yeah, for sure. I had these images that I had drawn that were really important to me. And those were the ones that were like very planned out. Some of them, we shot them and they were terrible. Like sometimes something works in a drawing and it does not work in real life. It looks stupid and frustrating. Uh, But then there were also things that happened on set that became images that I didn't plan for at all. Uh, And it was, it was weird because I, I scheduled the day down to like the minute. It was like every shot is going to take 45 minutes and like and the day before I was alone in the house and had like set up lighting like tested lighting for every shot 15 shots uh testing lighting so that like when the day came I just told my assistants this this like this is the number on that light put this number on that light do it here like here's the modifier blah 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 but then there were these breaks people were all just hanging out the entire day so they were like hanging out doing things uh uh like swimming in the pool uh just like doing random things so i would kind of go around and catch them doing that Hmm. um and then it just became a matter of like editing like some of those are still in the image are still in the pictures it is something that you learned about that fascinated you but clearly you know it was something very disturbing the work is born sort of out of this problematic or negative place as opposed to like, oh, you know, here's something beautiful that I want to show or that I want to enhance or like, you know, you know, give my own kind of take on it. Is a lot of your work born out of those like problematic natures of things? I don't think that the problematic isn't 
beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, like to me, the thing that's really beautiful about that is like it's such a it's such a fascinating summary of all the things that I think so many gay people I know think and feel. Mm-hmm. And there's something really like beautifully succinct about like um, that story existing in a like the metaphor that people feel about gayness existing in this like one microcosm. Like that's really interesting in a literal sense. No, I, I think it comes from a lot of different things. There are a lot of stories that are negative. A lot of the times they're very neutral though. Like some of the, the work that was made uh, after, after grad school and before Brian Singer had like a really wide range of influences. Like I was talking about like, um, like the fascination with the images coming back from the Mars Rover. One of them is uh, just a, like a photograph of a, of kind of a heavy bald guy eating lucky charms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like, I don't think of that as negative or positive. I think it's a little bit gross, but I don't think the, <laughs> the concept of it is, is either. I think, um, you know, there's a picture of a, a guy in an army outfit like filling up water balloons Mm -hmm. uh that was based on like a real experience that i had i was photographing on this like religious university and and uh there was an army guy they were having like a water balloon fight and i like had my camera with me and i walked up and i was like you know and that like charming photographer was like hey guys this is this is so wild this is cool can i take a couple pictures um and he was like no like really aggressive like no uh, I was like kind of taken aback, which is one one of many reasons why I've stopped asking. I've, I haven't asked a random person on the street to take their photograph in five years. Uh-huh. And I used to do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, because my experiences in New York were so negative, uh, so awful. People were so mean that it like scared it out of me. But um, yeah, so they're, they're really like, I think the unifying factor in all of my ideas ideas like the more conceptual ideas is um sort of layers of meaning like folding into itself um like something literal happening then being upended by something very metaphorical or like non-literal if that makes you know like the army like if i just want to talk about like the army guy uh blowing up water balloons like that um i want you to feel like there's commentary happening, but to not understand like what its purpose is. Yeah. Like you could interpret that as some sort of like anti-military thing, but why? Like, why would you ever interpret it that way? Right. Um, like that's a very like personal bias type of interpretation. Um, it has an opening the quality to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the kind of artwork that I'm most interested in spending a lot of time with you know one of the most formative books of my like young art life was collier shore's neighbors mm-hmm. um and i and you know in that book it's all about this idea of like um you know who is a german what is a german like what what does this mean when these like young people are pretending to be something that they aren't but it's this reminder of like an like an awful past, but then there's also all of these images that seem 
tangential, but hold all of this like metaphorical weight. I used to show that when I was teaching, uh, I used to show that book a lot out of context. And I would ask students to, I would show them like one image and I would say, uh, like write down what you think this image means. And I wouldn't say who the photographer was, what group of image it it was from, like anything. Mm -hmm. And then I would show the group of images and then I'd be like, okay, well now write what you think. And we would like go around and talk about it. Um, and I love that. I love that concept. I love like, I love the idea of, um, creating meaning out of, uh, something very abstract and in very subjective ways. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pleasure to hear you kind of speak so well and articulately about your work. It's really been lovely. Thank you for coming back. I'll interview you about your work sometime. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. That was my conversation with Matt Grubb that we recorded in Williamsburg. This episode is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhim. Music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.